If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Welcome to part two, the story of Horizon Zero Dawn. Let's get right back into it. The Nora have a tradition called the Proving. Every year, the young adults of the tribe who have trained for it gather for tests of combat readiness. All who finish the Proving are automatically gifted the title Brave, the Nora's version of a defender and hunter. The overall winner is granted the right to ask anything they desire of the High Matriarchs. Before the derangement and the Red Raids began, when Rost was young, he passed the right of Proving and became a Nora Brave. He eventually had a partner with whom he had a daughter named Alana. When Alana was six years old, the sacred lands were invaded by 12 murderous outlanders. They made their way to Rost's little village. They killed his partner and took his toddler daughter as hostage along with five other people. Whenever the Nora Braves got too close to the fiends, they would kill one of the hostages. So through the sacred lands, the villains and the Braves went until they reached the border of the sacred land. It was forbidden of any Nora to leave the Sacred Lands. To do so meant exile. The Outlanders, in an extreme display of cruelty, took the hostages beyond the border of the Nora land and killed them all just beyond the reach of the Braves. Nora law dictated that their bodies could not be recovered. Rost had lost everything. He couldn't even claim his daughter's body. He begged the High Matriarchs to grant him a way to leave the lands, to hunt these outlanders, to take revenge. The Matriarchs granted him the taboo and secretive title of Death Seeker. His spirit was ritualistically taken from his body and delivered to the arms of the All-Mother, their religious deity. As the Death Seeker, Rost was able to leave the Sacred Lands, though he did so as an outsider, and he could never reveal what he was doing or why he would not be welcomed back into Nora's society. He would not be welcomed back into the Sacred Lands. For an entire year, Rost hunted and stalked the murderers that took his family. He hunted them all over the known lands and slowly took vengeance for what was done in the Sacred Lands. However, his final hunt left him wounded and Rost wished to die as close to his home as he could. So he journeyed back to the Sacred Lands and laid himself down at the border. Before he perished, Rost was found by Anora Brave, a woman who had also lost family in the violent bandit raids. She chose to cross the threshold of Nora land to pull Rost back inside and deliver him into the embrace within the sacred lands so that he might receive help. Rost did not die miraculously, but how was he to be judged? A death seeker who returned from their mission? A once Nora Brave who had left the sacred lands brought back inside? The High Matriarchs decided that Rost could live in the Sacred Lands once again, but he would do so as an outsider, and he could never speak of the secretive title that he had taken. He could not tell of the journey he had taken, even if directly asked. Though Rost was deemed an outsider, those who knew him, primarily the Nora Braves, still respected and acknowledged him. Rost was given treatment not typically granted to an outsider, a testament to Rost's strength of character and value to the Nora. Rost settled into his life of solitude like a fish to water, away from Nora settlements within the sacred lands. He carried a deep sadness in his loss, but he made a way forward for himself alone in the wilds of the Nora homeland, until one day, when the High Matriarchs delivered to the outcast Rost a baby. 
the baby created by Gaia from the genetic code of Elizabeth Sobeck. While one might think it callous to deliver this responsibility to a man that had lost his family and his home, Rost embraced the baby girl as a gift. The unnamed child was taken into his care and given a home in the wilds of the sacred lands. And when the girl was six months old, it was time for her naming ritual. This was a rite meant to be performed by the child's mother, but, well, the girl didn't have one. In keeping with tradition as best as he could, Rost performed her naming ritual. He trekked far across Nora territory to reach the naming ritual grounds high atop a mountain overlooking the All-Mother Mountain. The High Matriarch Tirsa met the duo there, breaking rules to bless the outcast child on her naming day. And with joy, Rost cast the child's name out over the valley below. Aloy she would be. And wherever she would go, Rost promised that he would follow. Aloy grew into a whirlwind of a child, but even at a young age, she strongly resented how other Nora treated her, with disdain, avoidance, and fear. All she really had was Rost. Even other children shunned her as an outcast. Aloy wanted answers. She wanted to know what she had done wrong to deserve this treatment, but Rost didn't have answers for her. One day, when Aloy was no more than eight years old, a particularly bad experience sent the girl into a meltdown, running through a forest, where she, quite by accident, tumbled into some old ruins, ruins of the old ones, a place the Nora were forbidden to delve into, a place that Rost had told her to stay away from. But she had to go through those ruins to find a way out. Within this metal underground, little Aloy came across an ancient piece of technology called a focus. Aloy was a 99.47% genetic match of Elizabeth Sobek. When she put the focus on the side of her head, it sprang to life and started feeding her old-world information. Of course, she didn't understand any of it, but it allowed the kid to inspect old holographic displays, interact with old terminals and mechanisms, and even view messages recorded hundreds of years ago. Rost and Aloy eventually found each other. He called her back up to the surface and extracted her from the cave. But that little focus on the side of her head did not escape his attention. Rost tried to take it from her like it was a toy that she wasn't meant to have. But Aloy insisted on keeping it, physically moving away from Rost when he tried to move towards her. But rather than make demands or punish the girl for her ruined diving adventure, Rost refocused her energy into something productive. If she was going to be sneaking around getting into trouble, then she needed to be able to defend herself in the wilds, so she would begin training as a hunter the following day. Pretty smooth parenting move, I gotta say. Rost didn't especially like the focus that Aloy now wore. He called it a plaything and was probably quite suspicious of it, being as it was old one technology. But he humored the girl and let her keep it on. Unbeknownst to Rost, the focus was feeding Aloy extra information about the world around her, giving her insights into things that even he couldn't perceive. Rost taught the girl about herbs and medicine, how to sneak to avoid dangerous machines, how to use rocks and sounds to divert attention away from her, how to harvest from broken machinery. Aloy's focus showed her weak points on the bodies of the dangerous machines, so that when the time came for her to use her bow, she knew just where to attack. Using the focus, Aloy was even able to track the pathing of a herd to sneak through and render assistance to a Nora boy who had fallen near the herd, much to Rost's disapproval. What she did was exceedingly dangerous, but the alternative was just letting the boy fall victim to the machines. 
The boy, named Teb, tried to give his thanks to Rost and Aloy, something that was forbidden as the Nora were not to speak to outcasts, ever. Approaching Nora Braves collected Teb and chastised him for his conduct, but left the matter at that. Rost was still a known presence to the Nora defenders, and even in anger at the situation, the elder Brave just let it be. Despite little Aloy's bravery, some Nora children who were watching Rost and the girl walk home cruelly threw rocks at her and called her names. And when the children departed, she asked Rost, why was she an outcast? Who was her mother? Probably questions that she had asked a number of times before, but Rost's answers were all the same. It was not for them to know. The ones who may know were, well, the high matriarchs. So how, Aloy asked, could she get them to tell her? And the answer to this was not an easy one. The path would be long and difficult for Aloy. If she completed the proving, like Rost had so long ago, she would become a Nora Brave, by earned right no longer an outcast. But if she sought answers from the High Matriarchs, only by winning the proving could she command them to answer. The one who wins the proving may ask one thing of the High Matriarchs, if Aloy wants answers. Well, she's going to have to train all through her childhood and her teenage years for that one day for the proving. She has the one chance to win. There would be no do-overs. That very day, that very moment, Aloy decided that this was going to be her path forward. Rost supported her decision and immediately began training the girl as a hunter and a warrior. Now, before we travel too far ahead, let's tarry for a moment. Let's return to when Gaia sacrificed herself in an attempt to stop Hades, a story that will overlap with many others and is of utmost importance. We go back to the destruction of Gaia right before Aloy's creation began. The explosion of Gaia sent tremors throughout the land, and there was a supposed former Banuk shaman named Silence. And like a future little Aloy, he had a focus of his own. He'd found it while delving into a ruin, and he had spent weeks repairing and learning about it. And when the destruction of Gaia took place, Silence focus detected a faint and faraway signal, a signal that was searching for something, much like himself. So, Silence went to the broadcasting point, and there he found the severed AI, Hades. And in ignorance, Silence repaired the broken vessel holding it. Silence conversed with Hades, teaching it of his world, feeding it information, helping it rebuild itself. Hades was focused on the broadcasting towers that Hephaestus had created for Minerva, the towers used to deactivate the swarm so long ago. So, Silence helped Hades attain whatever knowledge it desired, and in turn, Silence was granted unmatchable scientific knowledge of the old world. Now, at this time, the Mad Sun King Jaron was still ruling over the Karja. The Red Raids were taking place. Victims from surrounding tribes were taken for sacrifice, entire villages wiped out in a day. Well, as the horrors of the Red Raids continued on throughout the years, factions within the Karja Kingdom began to turn on the Mad Sun King Jaron. A civil war broke out between those loyal to the Mad Sun King and those who wished to see him overthrown. The Sun King even had one of his own sons executed for begging his father to stop the Red Raids. The Mad Sun King's other son, Prince Avad, fled the Karja city of Meridian and gathered forces in and around their homeland to topple the Mad Sun King and take back the city of Meridian from the throes of madness. The Karja rebels allied themselves with Asaram forces, 
and they succeeded. The mad son King Durand was killed and Prince Avad took the throne. The Red Raids finally ended, but there were still those within the kingdom that believed in and were loyal to the dead son King Durand, who resented the usurper who now sat on the throne. The Loyalists fled Meridian and called themselves the Karja in Shadow, setting up new home at the once summer palace of the Karja Sun King called the Citadel. The now Sun King Avad and the Shadow Karja were at constant war, though neither side was willing to fully dedicate resources into wiping the other out. It was an extremely hostile semi-stalemate between the two factions. In the custody of the Shadow Karja was the youngest son and the wife of the dead Mad Sun King. The young boy Idaman and his mother Nasadi were treated like worshipped hostages by the Shadow Karja, their future ruler and, in their eyes, the rightful king of the Karja. But at least until Prince Idaman was grown, it was a man named Helis who led the Shadow Karja, a truly sick and twisted man. Eventually, Silence presented Hades to the Shadow Karja, to their leader Helis. Hades easily manipulated Helis and his high priest Bahavas into thinking that it was a prophesied being of their scriptures called the Buried Shadow, or the Karja Devil. Silence had instructed Hades on just how to do this, and it was as simple as one, two, three. Helis and his high priest believed Hades' proclamation, and with little hesitation they made a deal with the Devil. They would serve Hades, the Buried Shadow, and in return, the Shadow Karja would take the Grand City of Meridian for themselves. A cultic sect of the Shadow Karja was created called the Eclipse. The Eclipse served as the armed forces of Hades. With the monstrous man Helis at the helm, the Eclipse began creating a base of operation to excavate ancient machinery, pharaoh robots. Silence obtained focuses for members of the Eclipse and activated a network for long-range communication. The raising of ancient war robots troubled the man Silence. He served Hades but didn't trust it. He questioned the AI about its intentions. Once Silence's work on the focus network was finalized, Hades summoned Silence with the intentions of killing him. Silence was no longer useful and no longer unquestioning of Hades' intentions, but Silence heard his own kill order broadcast over the Focus network before the murder could take place, and he fled. Silence walked as a shadow throughout the lands, never getting too close to anyone or any place, lest Hades find him or someone recognize him. Then, another kill command was broadcast over the Hades Focus network that Silence was now spying on. A prisoner of the Eclipse, a man named Olin, had found a young woman that Hades designated as a system's threat. She was about to begin the Nora Rite of Proving. She wasn't even a brave. A war band of the cult was sent out to find and kill her, and this caught Silen's attention. Why would Hades care about a single Nora woman? She was so young, just barely matured enough to be called a woman. Most interesting. Silence began to investigate why this was, and from afar, he would watch over Aloy. Rost trained Aloy well. The proving was just on the horizon and she was ready for the gauntlet to come. But perhaps she was not prepared for just how passing the trial would impact her relationship with Rost. There was never any illusion between them. Rost raised her, but he was not her father. He was always honest with Aloy about her origins, at least what he knew of it. She just appeared one day and was delivered to him. He raised her as a loving father would, but did not pretend to be kin. Rost knew that Aloy becoming a brave meant she would no longer be able to interact with him. It was forbidden by Nora law for tribes' people to communicate with outcasts. 
Aloy promised that she would come to visit in secret. No one would see her breaking Nora law. She was not willing to just abandon Rost. The day before the proving, Rost walked Aloy to the Embrace, the heart of Nora territory, a place outcasts were not allowed. But Rost walked in honor as a brave before existing as an outcast. The gates were opened for him and for Aloy. He had one final test for Aloy before the proving. A vicious beast called a Sawtooth was in the embrace. It was a threat to the locals and the proceedings of the proving. Rost wants Aloy to destroy it with no assistance. The lesson in this exercise is that, though they are outcasts and treated poorly by the Nora, the Sawtooth beast was a threat to life. Aloy successfully takes down the machine, but not for herself, but to protect those who perhaps could not protect themselves, to keep safe the Braves who would have to fend it off, or the other young participants that would be in the proving. She will need to fight for others to serve a purpose greater than herself. At the threshold to Mother's Heart, where a feast will take place before the proving, Rost must take his leave of Aloy. She will have to walk the noisy, crowded village alone navigate the ceremony herself, with perhaps the guidance of High Matriarch Tirza, but otherwise alone. And Aloy is obviously nervous and uncertain. It's like a father dropping his exclusively homeschooled daughter off at college. Rost has to nudge her along with reassurances that with time it will feel normal and the other Nora will warm up to her eventually. And to ensure that Aloy does not use him as a crutch and to prevent her from breaking Nora law by seeking him out. Rost bids Aloy goodbye. He is going to venture where she cannot find him. Her future is more important than what they have, and though Aloy tries to argue against this, Rost is no fool. He knows she will try to track him, but he will make sure that is not possible for her. It's time for them to say farewell. They must walk different paths. She fights him until their last words. Aloy promises she will not let Rost go. Just getting through the gates proves to be a little bit dramatic. It's only the arrival of High Matriarch Tirza that saves Aloy's hide. The Braves guarding the gate to Mother's Heart actually tried to deny her entrance to the proving ceremony. Bad form, boys. Aloy has every right to participate, even as an outcast according to their own law. High Matriarch Tirsa has actually been anxiously awaiting Aloy's chance at the proving. She herself is quite intrigued by Aloy's origins, if her birth was a gift from the All-Mother that they worship, though we know that by All-Mother what they're actually referring to is Gaia. Aloy gets to meet a number of folk at the feast, some of them quite friendly and excited to speak with her. A few she's already met through happenstance out in the wilds, there are stories to be watched, speeches to be heard, history to be learned about, different tribes are here from Osaram to Karja to participate in the feast and honor the proving that will take place the next day. And Aloy catches a signal on her focus coming from a man from Karja. This is the man, Olin, the prisoner of the cult called the Eclipse. Aloy approaches Olin to speak with him, and this is when Hades becomes aware of Aloy's existence, and when Silence becomes aware of Aloy. This is a huge moment in her life, and she doesn't even realize it. When Hades sees her through Olin's focus, the Eclipse War Party is dispatched to hunt and kill her, but Aloy has no idea. Her focus isn't connected to their network, and now that question once again. Why does Hades want Aloy killed? Well, Aloy is a 99.47% genetic match to Elizabeth Sobek, a clone. Hades recognizes her, and this means Aloy can get access to Gaia Prime. 
Remember when old Ted Farrow convinced Gaia and Elizabeth to put in a master override function? Well, the master override could turn off or destroy any of Gaia's subordinate functions, and that includes Hades. Gaia left very clear instructions on how to kill Hades. If Aloy got into Gaia Prime and found out about that master override, it could be an absolute disaster for Hades. It is the one thing that absolutely guaranteed would stop Hades from carrying out its designated functions. This clone of Elizabeth Sobek must be destroyed in order to prevent this from happening. The kill order is sent down from Hades. Find this Nora and destroy her. But back to the events of the proving. Just reaching the trial grounds is a feat in itself, requiring a climb up a snowy mountain face with no safety systems in place. Then it's just a matter of claiming a hunting trophy from a kill and racing to the end of the Braves trail with said trophy. It doesn't matter if the proceedings are fair, what matters is a contestant's performance and the results. And for the first time in Nora history, an outcast has won the proving. Aloy finishes first place and is proclaimed a brave of the Nora tribe, no longer an outcast. But the Eclipse, they were brutally efficient in their travel. Their arrival marks the end of the proving trial and the beginning of a massacre. They do not target just Aloy. Everyone at the proving grounds is fair game, regardless of age or role. Aloy and other Braves who survived the initial wave of fire begin efforts to fight off the attackers and escape the mountain. But these are seasoned warriors fighting for Hades, who they view as a devil, bringing violence against Braves so young that some would still call them children. Very few make it off the mountain. Aloy is the last of the fighting Braves left when the snow starts to settle, but the eclipse is not gone. It is their cruel master Helis himself that intends to handle Aloy. Rather than break the girl's neck immediately, however, he hesitates and wanders with the choking girl to the cliffside, wandering to himself the same thing that silence has. Why this girl? What's so important? His internal questioning costs him the kill. Helis does deliver a cut to her throat, but Rost watched the proving from afar, and when the bloodshed began, he leapt into action arriving at the Proving Grounds just before Helos could chuck Aloy off the mountainside. Rost cannot stop Helos. He cannot cut him down. Helos proves the victor in this fight as well, but lackluster in finishing his work. Helos orders the mountaintop destroyed to conceal evidence, and with his final act, Rost bids Aloy to survive what is to come and gently rolls her away from the blast that will claim everything and everyone still on the Proving Grounds. When Aloy awakens, she's within the All-Mother Mountain, where only the High Matriarchs typically dwell. She remembers High Matriarch Tirsa, arguing that she deserved to be near her mother right now, meaning their deity, the All-Mother. Some time has passed since the massacre, and Aloy's focus now shows her data from that day. She can see Helis enforcing Hades' kill order, target imaging on her location, Olin's data transmission of their conversation, and an old random data transmission of Elizabeth Sobek, obtained by Hades showing Aloy to be a 99.47% copy of Elizabeth. It doesn't mean anything to Aloy, not yet, but the data collected by her focus will soon be her guide forward. High Matriarch Tirsa takes Aloy into the heart of the mountain, where she was found as a baby. 
Tirsa believed Aloy came from the womb of the mountain, and again, she's really not too far off from the truth. Beyond those doors is the facility where she was created, one of Eleuthia's cradles. Aloy stands before the door and a scan initiates, recognizing her as Elizabeth Sobek, but Gaia's registry is corrupted and it cannot confirm her identity, denying Aloy access. But though Aloy bemoans the situation in frustration and anger, Tirsa cheers that the All-Mother seems to recognize Aloy somehow. The door won't open because of corruption, and if Aloy cleanses the corruption plaguing the All-Mother, then surely the All-Mother will fully recognize her and open the door. Tirsa proves to be the smartest woman in the whole damn village, putting two and two together in an instant. Aloy saw a vision of a short-haired woman that resembled herself, and that's why the outsiders attacked the Proving? Well, find out who that woman was. What possible lead could she follow? Well, of course, Olin, the man who betrayed Aloy's presence to the attackers. Track him down and start asking questions. Tirsa and another of the High Matriarchs bestow the title of Seeker upon Aloy so that she might pursue this path. It will take her beyond the Sacred Lands, something forbidden to the Nora, but as a Seeker, she may leave and travel as she must in pursuit of her sacred task, and she may return home as a Nora with no consequence. At the border areas of Norad territory, bandits and outsiders are already seizing on the weakened tribes pushing into their territory, squatting in hazed villages, threatening to push deeper into the Nora lands as there are fewer braves who can defend the border. Aloy lends help as she can, meets fellow Nora as she travels, finds glimpses into the past through old records kept, even meets a few interesting outsiders whose intrigue has drawn them into the conflict. And then the cherry on top, Aloy finds one of the mighty cauldrons of Hephaestus, who continues on creating hostile machinery to combat the humans that continue to destroy its creations. At the heart of this cauldron, Aloy is able to download override codes for the machines made within this cauldron into hardware she pulled off of a corrupted machine, overrides that will allow her to exert control over this cauldron's creations. It would behoove her to delve into these cauldrons of Hephaestus in the future, to expand her control over the threats that walk the Earth. But Aloy's mission draws her on to Olin at the Karja city of Meridian. She cannot remain here in the Sacred Lands, as she does not serve as only a brave anymore. She has some seeking to do. Now, as is customary, I will note, there are dozens of side stories and personalities that will not be mentioned in this journey. Not that they're not interesting, but there's just not enough time. We'd be here all week. So we will focus on the major events of Aloy's story. The escalation in robot aggression and violence even has the Karja army on edge. The gates remain closed when threats are near, which means the gates are closed almost all the time now. Aloy has to fight off nearby threats to convince them to let her through. Even this well-put-together force is having trouble dealing with it. Through these gates is Karja territory. And if you can believe it, the bandit and rabid machine problem is worse here than in Nora territory. It's far more dangerous. But also, there are grand spectacles of massive canyons, exotic flora, beautiful architecture, and even graceful machines, unlike anything Aloy has ever seen before. Even the gates to the city called Meridian are extravagant, but the Karja city guards are forbidding entry to outsiders until undergoing a search. There was a recent attack by Shadow Karja on Meridian's Karja forces in contested territory, 
Remember, there's a civil war going on right now between the Shadow Karja and Sun King Avad's Karja from Meridian. And this attack, it left the captain of the Sun King's vanguard dead, a woman named Ursa. And Aloy knows Ursa's brother, Erend. The two met at the proving ceremony before the massacre took place. Erend is now the captain of the vanguard, but he's none too thrilled over it. The loss of his sister is weighing heavily on him, and he drowns out his pain with alcohol. But seeing Aloy again, it brightens his mood. He'd thought her dead at the proving massacre and had grown fond of the young woman. Aloy entrusts Aaron with why she is there. She needs help finding the man Olin. He may know something about what happened there, and she was targeted in the attack. And it just so happens that Aaron, well, he's a, he's a walking search warrant. He takes Aloy to Olin's apartment, kicks in the door, and finds the place empty. There are clues scattered about that betray bits of Olin's story. He was a prisoner of the cult, the Eclipse. His family was captured, and he's compelled to obey under threat of their lives. So, Olin may not be an instigator, but he still must answer for what he's done. He's been moved to a dig site called the Rock Wreath. Seeing Aloy's focus in action, Erend requests her help in inspecting his sister's murder site, that he might find the soldiers that took her life. She was known amongst the Shadow Karja as a close ally of the Sun King, and a woman who'd caused them a huge amount of militant grief. She was a major asset in Avad's victory over the Mad Sun King Jaron, and led a number of successful assaults against the Shadow Karja in her time as captain, but Erend wanted to know exactly who it was that killed her. Aloy is able to piece together that the site looks strange, highly suspect, actually. Like, amidst all the blood, someone took the time to mix the armor of two different people. They needed to inspect the mutilated body back at Meridian. It may not actually be the captain of the Vanguard. It may not actually be Ursa. And what Eren discovers is that, no, it is not actually the corpse of his sister. And upon that discovery, the Sun King Avad becomes involved. You see, the Asaram were quite intermingled with the Karja. The two tribes became allies after the end of the Red Raids. The Asaram helped Avad take Meridian back from the Mad Sun King. Erend and his sister Ursa were from Asaram, but the Karja Sun King and Ursa, well, they were quite fond of one another. But for the Sun King to take on an Asaram wife or a consort wouldn't be acceptable for either tribe, so at least publicly, their relationship was not pursued. The death of Ursa would be devastating to him as well. And if she could somehow still be alive, he would do anything to have her back. The Sun King's advisor believes that an old enemy of Ursa was still alive and prowling the territory that she supposedly was killed in, a warlord named Durval. But Durval is not of the Shadow Karja. Durval is an Asaram, the same as Erend and Ursa. Because of his losses during the Red Raids, the capture and murder of his entire family, Durval went mad. He desired to kill as many Karja as possible, even if they were innocent of any crime or involvement in the Red Raids. Durval chose to pursue vengeance against any and all that sided with the Karja, even if they sided with the Sun King Avad. The only good Karja was a dead Karja. If Ursa wasn't killed or taken by Durval, then he would have information, easily obtained with the slow extraction of teeth, I would imagine. They track down Durval's camp, but the man is a sickly genius tinkerer, crafting large weaponry, bombs, reprogramming and stripping out aggressive machines, and creating crowd control mechanisms that could stop any man in their tracks, like this audio weapon that requires special ear protection to avoid. 
And Ursa is indeed still alive, but not for much longer. Derval's plan was truly to kill her, but he wanted it to be slow. He lured her into a trap with a request for negotiations that she knew would be false, but she didn't realize how dangerous and devious Derval had become. Ursa doesn't explicitly know what Derval is planning, but it involves blackening out the sun, which probably means something pretty bad, right? Derval is planning on planting massive explosives in Meridian and blowing it sky high. How do Aloy and Aaron discover this? Well, the one-man search warrant breaks down the door of some property purchased under an alias Derval has used in the past, and they find a massive oozing green bomb. There's no defusing the bomb, but a very safe, controlled, well-planned-out detonation is taken care of on the spot. The bomb itself is bad news, but there are also barrels of accelerant called Blaze nearby. They push the barrels of Blaze out to split up and lessen the force of the blast, and thankfully it mostly works. The city doesn't crumble, but hopefully no one was on the lower level of the city when that happened. Well, I, I guess there weren't really a lot of other options, were there? Derval himself is in the city and has brought his acoustic weaponry with him. Somehow, he didn't hear the massive explosion of his gimped bomb. Well, maybe he had his earplugs in. But he is spotted, heading towards the Meridian Palace, towards the Sun King. Aloy confiscated some ear protection back at Derval's camp, but no one else has a set. I imagine the sort of attack to be a special level of hell, something so consuming and piercing that it makes anything other than screaming impossible. Aloy is able to intervene, again, and stop the Mad Tinkerer from killing the Sun King. Justice demands that Derval face a trial. He's wronged many Osiram and Karja clans. He need not be executed quickly, in fact, he should not be. That would be too easy for a villain like Derval. But there's still the matter of Olin to attend to. He was moved to a dig site called the Rock Wreath, and with Derval handled, he is the next target on the list. This dig site, though, it's remnants of the ancient swarm being brought back. The Chariot series. The Eclipse has gone full nightmare mode under Hades' command, excavating that defeated boogeyman that was once the Pharaoh Plague. In their ignorance, they act not as terrors upon just their enemies, but as their own doom as well, should the plague be brought back. Hades has convinced them that these machines will only destroy their foes, and their once homeland within Karja will be returned to them. But don't make deals with the devil. Hades' directive is to undo this world, not change it. Oh, and there's a caller on the line. Caller, what is your name? Oh, who could it be? Oh, well, well, well. It's that so-called former Banuk shaman, Silence. Silence has been watching over Aloy's journey ever since Olin found her at the Proving Feast. Kind of voyeuristic, but okay, Silence. Olin is surrounded by the Eclipse, members who all have their own focus on. It would be nigh impossible for her to hide and sneak here. And even if she did reach Olin, his focus would betray their conversation to Hades. And Hades thinks that this clone of Elizabeth Sobek died at the Proving Massacre. So, Silence does Aloy a solid and disables their network. She doesn't have long, but Olin is nearby and mostly unguarded. He sings like a bird and tells Aloy all that he knows. Though Aloy does not yet know what Hades is, she at least now knows its name. The horrible events at the Proving Massacre are made more clear, though the topic is still murky without knowledge of what Hades is and what its ultimate goal is. 
Olin and the Shadow Karja believe their cooperation will deliver them a victory in the Karja Civil War, but, well, we know better, don't we? Olin can, however, point Aloy towards where he himself found the image of Elizabeth Sobek. Olin found a hologram of her at the ruins of Maker's End. Maybe Aloy can find more information there. It's a good lead, a damned good lead. Olin himself, while not blameless, was not the villain of the day. And the man called Helis is certainly one of the most evil men alive, he offers. Olin was an unwilling participant that is damned regardless of what he does. But Aloy chooses to not kill the man. He has a spirit of goodness and can strive for redemption. Aloy will instead spare Olin and help him retrieve his family from imprisonment. They will flee the lands of the Shadow Karja, go into hiding, and Olin will spend the rest of his life trying to make amends for the things that he was a part of. The next step will take Aloy to Maker's End, to where Olin claimed to have found the image of Elizabeth Sobek. And Silence, ever the chirpy bird over the focus, will help her in this journey. Upon the snowy peaks of Maker's End, another old world machine is being brought back to life by the Eclipse. This one is called a Deathbringer, and it is huge. The destructive potential of this would be devastating. Aloy stops this particular group, but these digs are taking place all around the region. It won't be the only large-scale machine they uncover. This venture needs to proceed in haste, to say the least. In a moment of, perhaps not quite thinking through the implications of it, Aloy picks up one of the dead Eclipse cultists' focus for a scan, and Hades immediately notices Aloy on the network. It now knows that she did not die in the Proving Massacre, and this is unacceptable. The hunt for this girl will resume. Helis will be aware that she still lives. This place called Maker's End was, in the old world, the offices of Pharaoh Automated Solutions. The door here is sealed, just like the door of the All-Mother Mountain, which she was denied entrance to. This time, though, the Alpha Registry was intact. This time, the door opens for Aloy, hailing a welcome to Elizabeth Sobek. And Maker's End is an absolute treasure trove of information to Aloy and, by extension, silence. They're stories and events that we have already discussed, but now it's Aloy's turn to piece it together and make sense of the Ancient Ones and their technology. What the Chariot series was, complex societal situations of that era, biographies on both Pharaoh and Sobek, how hubris made the Pharaoh plague possible, Ted Pharaoh and Elizabeth Sobek's reactions in the birth of Operation Enduring Victory, and then Project Zero Dawn itself. Silence finally appears at the end of her exploration of this complex, intent on deciphering her discoveries. What exactly Project Zero Dawn was is unclear, but it's a question that must be answered. Knowing what we do about Silence, well, he is an efficient liar, isn't he? He claims to not know much about Hades. He's not forthcoming about his origins. He's concealing information to get what he wants from Aloy. Their goals may align, discovering what Aloy is and how Hades can be terminated, but Silence would seem to have motives that are somewhat other than altruistic. But that's perhaps a problem for another day. For now, Silence is a good guide and an excellent mind to piece together the puzzle with Aloy. Elizabeth Zobek spoke with Ted Farrow in a recorded meeting about traveling to the U.S. Robot Command to inform the Joint Chiefs of the Farrow Plague. Silence knows this to be a place now called the Grave Horde. That will be Aloy's next venture. 
and what is wrapped around and within the remnants of the U.S. Robot Command is very telling of what befell this place. It's a BOR-7 Horus, a metal devil, a Titan machine. The people that fell here died fighting off the Titan and the Swarm valiantly in the name of Operation Enduring Victory. It's one of countless other bases all around the world that experienced something similar, a firefight to the death against the Pharaoh Plague. And like Maker's End, this place is rich with stories of the past about Operation Enduring Victory and the personal lives of those who gave their all in its name. But these ruins that are now called the Grave Horde are not empty. The Eclipse is here, working on the dead Titan. And attached to the BOR-7 Horus are other smaller death machines. It's like a mobile command center and a massive mobile weapon. Aloy is able to intervene here, but imagine if the Eclipse got one of these things up and running. Imagine if they got it up and running and Hephaestus started outfitting it at one of their cauldrons. I mean, game over, man. All of these skirmishes with the Eclipse are just putting out little fires as they appear. Eventually, it will be unstoppable, so long as Hades exists, so long as there's nothing to control what comes out of the cauldrons. What is adding up very quickly here is another doomsday scenario, akin to what took place almost 1,000 years ago. Reviewing the fateful meeting that took place between Elizabeth Sobeck and the Joint Chiefs, Aloy learns of the orbital launch base, used as the staging area for Project Zero Dawn. It's another venture into unknown places, another lead, but there's no choice. And this time, oh buddy, it's not as simple as just waltzing in. The orbital launch base is located at the place called the Citadel, the former summer palace of the Sun King, now taken over by the Shadow Karja. Within the Citadel is the captive child, Prince Idemon, and the widow of the Mad Sun King, Jaron. If Aloy was found there, it would be an absolute disaster. But Silence calls for Aloy to meet him outside the Citadel and informs her of a back way in and a way to bring down the enemy focused network permanently. How convenient. Then Aloy could walk the grounds of the Citadel without being detected. She pieces together that he knows this because he was a part of the Eclipse, and Silence doesn't deny this, though he argues that his motives did not align with theirs. He's always lived in service to himself, but he's trying to correct mistakes that he made. Vague, but admirable. The network node is high atop a modified tall neck, like a, a massive robot giraffe. And Hades itself is nearby, resting in the head of a dead Titan machine. Her interaction with the casing of the module alerts Hades to her presence, and it attempts to stop her immediately. It has complete control over all excavated pharaoh machinery. She manages to destroy the module, bring down their network, and make it out with her hide intact, but Silence had to have known that Hades was there. In Silence's eyes, it was a risk worth taking, but a callous choice to make. He's put her at risk several times over, and now he's withholding information about dangers as well. But he says no good partnership is built on trust. She should not trust him. All that is required are mutual self-interests to build an understanding upon. Now, at least, Aloy can enter the Citadel. Bounty jobs are dished out in the King's Court, where a tiny little Prince Idemon sits clutching his mother. And this is immediately troubling. They're more akin to prisoners than royalty, hostages to the Shadow Karja's fervor, a woman named Vanasha approaches Aloy 
and marks her as one who's not a blind killer. In fact, she asks for help, a test of the little huntress. Save a defecting Shadow Karja soldier from bounty hunters chasing him down. The high priest Bahavas himself placed the mark on this soldier, framing him for a crime that he did not commit. Aloy does save the soldier, named Uthid, and Uthid himself cuts down the high priest Bahavas. But the real point of all this is, well, with High Priest Bahavas dead, no one will be attending to the little hostage prince and his mother. Vanasha is a spy, working on behalf of the Sun King Avad. Some time ago, she'd gone to the Citadel and found a way to place herself as the handmaid of the little prince Itamen's mother, Nasadi. Vanasha put much effort into cultivating a trust with Itamen and Nasadi, with the intentions of one day getting them back into Meridian, away from the Shadow Karja. Aloy's arrival was the perfect opportunity to accomplish that. Itamen fleeing the Shadow Karja would remove their final form of legitimacy to the throne in Meridian. Furthermore, the mother and son wanted to escape and go back home. With the High Priest dead, getting the two out of the Citadel will now be easy work for the seasoned spy. All Aloy need do is ensure their path through the wilds is safe. And it's not the smoothest of escorts, but all parties involved in the trek perform their duties, and when the dust settles, the little prince and his mother are safely returned home to the great city of Meridian, where the Sun King Avad himself greets them and warmly welcomes his family back. But oh my goodness, saving the royal family wasn't really the point of coming here, was it? No, 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 no. The point was reaching the orbital launch base. Oh my, remember that vastly important task? The staging area of Project Zero Dawn. Silence knows of a shortcut, a little vent on the outside of the Citadel. And this is an important moment, as there are no returns from this. All other duties must be laid aside. It is the final stretch, and there will be no interruptions. It's time to find some truths. In Aloy goes, through the deep vent, to a place where perhaps she and Silence both will finally have answers to lifelong questions that they have both struggled against. Opening the massive doors requires emergency circumventing blockage in the vent system. Essentially, a lot of air pushes gunk out of the vents to the surface, where Shadow Karja would be cued into an underground presence. So it's time to be quick. There are tons of data pads and old recorded messages about this place, long lost history to piece together. An old video recording of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs spells out the tragic fate of the Old Ones, the lie told to the public so that time for Project Zero Dawn could be bought with blood. There was a short moment in time, almost completely devoid of any hope, save what Zero Dawn could offer in the faraway future. The truth was hard to bear on those who were chosen to know the truth about Zero Dawn. It's remarkable that they were able to achieve this in such a short amount of time. Life returned to Earth because of these people. And then Aloy finally finds Elizabeth Sobeck's complete explanation of what Zero Dawn was, in its entirety what she meant to accomplish through Gaia. It's the presentation given to all personnel drafted to work on the project. And while Elizabeth isn't really Aloy's mother, it's the closest that she has to one. It's her ancestry, her roots, a massive step forward in understanding where she came from, Elizabeth and Gaia. So in a sense, Aloy has two mothers, but there's still that unknown. Why was she created? They still do not know that answer, but they're so close. They're so close to piecing it all together. 
Aloy finds and downloads the Alpha Registry needed to repair the door back at the All-Mother Mountain, cleanse the corruption, as High Matriarch Tirsa put it. Just a few more steps, and then it will all make sense. But Aloy's time here is up. It's not just Shadow Karja or the Eclipse that have entered the underground building. It's Helas himself hunting Aloy through these halls. But he won't snuff her out here. Once again, Helas chooses to stay his hand and let Death find the girl another way. He chooses her end to be the Pits of the Sun Ring. In a gladiator-style gauntlet, Aloy must fight, and though unfair, she overcomes all that is thrown her way, much to the rage of Helas. He didn't expect she could hold her own against his machines, and like a real good sport, he sends two corruptors into the arena to finish the job that he himself couldn't. Twice. And now, twice. Helas has let the little huntress escape his grasp. Silence makes an appearance and extracts the girl from the sun pit. Seems he really wasn't so far away after all. And actually, put himself at risk. This is what we might call personal growth. Very good, Silence. And with this feat achieved, it's time for Aloy to finally go back home, back to the sacred lands, to open that damned door within the All-Mother Mountain. And the situation has changed for the Nora. It's not just bandits and small-tier machinery that they have to fight. There are pharaoh war machines marching on their border. Nora Braves are holding the line, and all within the valley who could make it have taken refuge within the All-Mother Mountain. So there will be an unavoidable audience when Aloy finally returns. And some are not so kind when she enters the mountain. In particular, one extremely irritating high matriarch that's like a broken record. This talk of outcasts, curses, religious law, it all seems so far away now, doesn't it? So inconsequential. It's such a small look on a much larger mosaic. How deep and wide the world has grown for Aloy in this absence. And she can finally repair that corrupted Alpha Registry. The door within the mountain finally recognizes Aloy as Elizabeth Sobek and grants her entrance to Eleuthia's cradle. Scrawled on the walls are colorful drawings left behind by the generation that was started here so long ago. Those children that were never allowed to leave the nursery area, that never went on to be educated by Apollo. There are glimpses of them throughout their childhood into their teenage years, and then their sad removal from the cradle when food ran out. They were bitterly unprepared for it without Apollo's teachings, but they managed somehow to prevail. There were so many consoles set up for educational purposes, so much more potential for life that was lost without Apollo there. Eleuthia wasn't able to create more life. There weren't enough resources in her section of the facility to sustain more children. Gaia itself, or herself, left her final plea here to Elizabeth Sobek, or rather the life created from Elizabeth, really, for Aloy. Gaia tells Aloy the story of the mysterious transmission that severed her subordinate functions and made them standalone AI, and the efforts she had to pursue to at least impair Hades. But there's more here than just a story to tell. Gaia has a plan for action, a remedy to the threat, and a request for the future. At Gaia Prime, within the control room, is the master override that Ted Farrow insisted Elizabeth place into Gaia. Seems he was correct on that matter. Always leave an override. Aloy can use the Master Override to wipe out Hades as one of Gaia's subordinate functions, 
Then, the system can be entirely rebooted and Gaia can begin repairing herself and bringing her functions back in line, and in turn, remove the highly aggressive programming within the machines walking the lands. Aloy is not of woman, but of machine. She's spent so long searching for her mother, and in a way found that she had two, but it's not the same. To hail from a society that so worships the mother and motherhood, then to find yourself a copy of one? Well, that is difficult, yes. But Aloy sees beyond the beliefs of her tribe, understands the technology behind it. And while she respects the beliefs of the tribe and doesn't try to force anything upon them, the truth that she's learned of herself and her purpose have made her more akin to Elizabeth Sobek than Anora Brave. Much to her disdain, however, the Nora start worshipping her and calling her the Anointed. She promptly puts a stop to it, at least in that moment, and expresses disapproval, but that's probably going to end up being a title that she'll consistently have to scorn before it stops. If she can even make them stop, it's, it's an extreme 180 from how she was treated at the proving ceremony. The story of Rost is also finally revealed to Aloy by High Matriarch Tirsa before departure. Rost was as much a part of herself as Elizabeth Sobek, so, in a way, she has two mothers and a father. Having lost Rost is still painful, his absence will leave a hole in her heart that only time could ever hope to scar over. But there is another great journey to take, up a mountain, crawling with vicious machines, to where Gaia Prime once lay. The self-destruction left a crater in the mountain. It's all that remains of Gaia, for now. Silence has been here before. He's actually spent a great deal of time up here. He's built walkways into his own workshops and can guide Aloy through the area. He's not physically there, but within one of his old areas, he projects himself to explain more of his own history with this place and gives assistance in direction on how to initiate the Master Override. This was the facility of the Alphas, the leading minds of Project Zero Dawn. They locked themselves in when the swarm drew near. The place where Elizabeth Sobek volunteered herself to manually seal a door that didn't properly clamp shut. The place where Ted Farrow killed the Alphas once Zero Dawn was completed and Apollo was destroyed. The Master Override rests in that same room where the Alphas were murdered. So much history, sadness, victory, and loneliness. Silence does make his way up to his old workshop to meet Aloy when her task is accomplished. To say goodbye and tell her the rest of his story. A final confession, perhaps. His involvement with Hades' empowerment and culpability in the terrors carried out by the Eclipse, all in exchange for knowledge from Hades. Silence had wondered why Hades was so interested in the Spire near the city of Meridian, and now they know. The Spire was created by Hephaestus for Minerva. It broadcast the codes to stop the Pharaoh Plague hundreds of years ago. Hades wants that tower to transmit new codes to activate them, so the destruction of Earth can begin anew. Remember, this is why Hades exists, to undo Gaia's work. As an independent AI, Hades will do anything it must to accomplish this. It wants that spire at Meridian, and if he gets it, that will be the end of all things once again. Silence takes his leave to journey the world and learn more of its secrets, leaving Aloy the gift of his lance which will carry the Master Override to defeat Hades. His work here is done, at least for now. Aloy needs to get close enough to Hades 
to pierce it with Silen's lance and the Master Override. She knows that an attack is coming from Hades, and the goal is not the city of Meridian, but rather that spire. The spire must be defended at all costs, which the Sun King Avad obliges. News of an attack from the Eclipse on the Karja has spread, and allies from across many tribes have traveled to Meridian to aid in the efforts to stop whatever may come. What forces do arrive in the city have just enough time to prepare before the forces of Hades mobilize and begin to march on the city. Much like humanity in the past, this is a force that cannot be defeated, lest the head of the snake is cut off. But unlike the events of the Pharaoh Plague, there is a way to end this threat if Aloy can just get close enough to Hades. The killer Helis is cut down in the battle by Aloy, failing in his duty to end the young woman. Third time was not his charm. How tragic to see him go. The overwhelming numbers of Hades' army open a way for the AI to be dragged into the spire and placed upon it, to begin awakening the ancient machines that have slumbered since the end of the Pharaoh Plague. Hades has protection in the form of a massive Deathbringer and obedient machines, but even a Deathbringer can be brought down. The forces of Meridian fight through Hades' protection to the feeble AI itself. It rests at the base of Minerva's spire vulnerable. Aloy injects the Master Override into Hades and through her focus uses the credentials of Elizabeth Sobek to command the purge of Gaia's extinction protocol. With the destruction of Hades comes the end of his activation commands. The machines of its army shut down when the spire broadcasts the override. They're as good as scrap metal without Hades. And this marks the end of this particular journey. Celebrations will ensue, rebuilding will begin, and there's still the task of rebooting Gaia's systems. But there's room to breathe now, and time for Aloy to process all that has happened since she first left her homeland. She chooses to search out Elizabeth Sobek, what became of her. She'd said she wanted to go home after she sealed Gaia Prime. Aloy tracks down this place through her old journals and records. She finds the decrepit yet beautiful Sobek Ranch, the childhood home of Elizabeth. Resting on a stone seat facing the old home is the body of Elizabeth, where she chose to sit and meet her end, where, unbeknownst to her, almost 1,000 years in the future, her daughter, Aloy of the Nora, would find her and have peace in the finality of her mother's story. Hello, old friend. Remember me? We've still so much to discuss. So much you never revealed. Your masters, for example. The ones who sent the signal that woke you. Knowledge has its rewards, don't you think? Well, let's begin. <laughs> 